This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. The federal government has officially closed a chapter in its response to the COVID-19 pandemic. As of last week, the virus is no longer regarded as a public health emergency. Weeks before that, the World Health Organization made a similar declaration. For the past year, the Emergency Committee and WHO have been analyzing the data carefully and considering when the time would be right to lower the level of alarm. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. That may not be a big deal for you. By all accounts, the world looks drastically different than it did three years ago. The return to normal has been embraced by most of the world, even though COVID-19 remains a leading cause of death, even as it recedes. We always knew that declaring the end of the pandemic would be sort of wonky. Can we call it an end when people are still dying, when people are still in ICUs, or suffering the debilitating effects of long covid It's been about 10 months since I last checked in with Dr. Bob Wachter. If you spend time on Twitter, or used to, which I understand, you probably know him. He's the chair of UCSF's Department of Medicine, who turned into a kind of social media influencer three years ago. He became a voice of reason during the pandemic, amassing nearly 275,000 followers. He's helped break down COVID-19 guidance and data, leveraging his own personal experiences to offer advice on how we can stay safe. I thought it would be a good time to touch base with Dr. Walker now. What does he make of the end of the public health emergencies? After remaining abundantly cautious throughout the pandemic, is he finally breathing a sigh of relief? And what's his public role going to be now when a majority of the world believes the pandemic is truly over? Here's my conversation with Dr. Bob Wachter. Dr. Wachter, it's been a little less than a year since you were on this show. A lot has changed since then. Notably, the U.S. officially ended its COVID-19 public health emergency, and weeks before that, the World Health Organization declared something similar. You know, at this point, many Americans may not even be paying attention to these declarations. But from your perspective, are they the right call? I think they are. I remember having a conversation with uh, Dr. Jha, uh, Ashish Jha, who's the White House COVID coordinator, a few months ago, and we were talking about when is the right time. And the point I made with him was that if it's not now, when will it be? Should it have been a month ago, a month from now, six months from now? I don't know. I think it's a soft call there. I think the key point is the last year has been pretty stable. I think we have entered a period that is kind of our new normal and probably will be for the next several years and maybe forever. And it just wasn't obvious to me that if we don't begin moving to a different way of approaching COVID now, it's not obvious why this would be any different a few months from now. Now, six months from now, we could have a new variant and we may be in a different situation and then we will have to react to that. 
But mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd say the most surprising thing over the last 18 months has been the relative lack of surprises. I think the point I tend to make is whatever you're doing now probably needs to be something sustainable that you're comfortable doing a year from now, because I don't think the situation is going to be markedly different. And you told my colleague, Chronicle reporter Ideen Vaziri, that COVID no longer meets your definition of a pandemic. How would you describe where we are? Yeah, I think we're kind of fussing a lot about that word. And then I understand it because three years ago, it was probably a new word for 99% of us. And it got associated in our brains with terror. I mean, with just a absolutely unprecedentedly horrible situation that scared the pants off all of us appropriately, that's killed more than a million people in the United States. And so as we move away from that word, it's like, all right, what is what is this thing? And the fact is, in, in kind of epidemiology and public health and medicine, we don't have a good word for the new situation that we're in. But if pandemic in people's minds, and really, as you look at the definitions, is a global threat that is rapidly changing and requires massive changes in our personal behavior and massive institutional responses, that's not where we are now. Mm. And so... I wish I had a word for, you know, it doesn't feel right to call it endemic, which is what we call, you know, the flu and we call the common cold, that it's a ongoing infectious threat that is not rapidly changing and that's been around for a while and we kind of know what to do with it. That doesn't feel right either. I mean, this thing is still killing a thousand people a week in the United States. So if, if by endemic we're implying it's kind of no big deal anymore, that's not right. But if mm -hmm. by pandemic, we're implying the situation we've been in for the past three years, that doesn't feel right either. I think of it as an ongoing health threat that is significant. That's the fourth leading killer in the United States right now uh, that that does require some attention by policymakers and requires individuals to think about their behavior in the context of a threat that is real, but nowhere near the threat that we all have gotten used to over the past several years. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, a lot of people have turned to you on guidance on how to mitigate risk, how to behave in social settings. Are there certain things that you're doing now or that you've resumed doing in recent months that maybe you weren't doing the last time we touched base? Yeah, I, I, I'm being less careful than I was. And some of it is fatigue at, at, and, and some of it is a, a little bit of social pressure. You know, it's it, it, mm -hmm. if you think about two or three years ago, if you walked into a room and you weren't wearing a mask, particularly in the Bay Area, it is not true in other parts of the country, but in the Bay Area, people looked at you like, what's wrong with you? And now it's hard being the only person in a room wearing a mask. And I get that. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough and confident enough that if uh, I'm not going to wear a mask for that reason, but it definitely crosses your mind. And I think the social pressure is real and I'm fatigued about this too. And I'd love to go back to 2019. But what I've tried to settle into is a behavior that I think is appropriately in my mind, and everybody's going to make their mind up about this, weighing the ongoing risk against my desire. I prefer not to wear a mask. I don't love it. My desire to get back to as normal a lifestyle as I can and being quite intentional about if I'm doing it now, it has to be something that I feel like I'll be able to do three years from now because I think the threat will be about the same. It could be more if there's a new nasty variant, but it's probably not going to be less. But I also feel like if I'm going to get COVID, and I haven't yet, 
just mm-hmm. mostly dumb luck, I think, but also, you know, being moderately careful. If I'm going to get COVID, I'd rather get it. This sounds kind of silly, but, but, but feels real. I'd rather get it eating indoors when it's, you know, when it's cold and windy outside and eating indoors was sort of a fun, good thing to do. It adds to the quality of my life. I'd rather do it then than get it because I took it off on an airplane when I really didn't need to talk to anybody. I didn't need to not have a mask on. So, you know, I'd rather get it doing something where I've weighed the risks and benefits of the activity. And I feel like this is something I want to do without a mask. I want to travel. I want to, you know, I I, want to eat indoors and all that. That's kind of how I think about it. So what does that lead me to do? It leads me to always have a mask in my pocket. It leads me to, if I'm on an airplane flying to the East Coast, if you see me, I'll be wearing my mask for most of the time. I will take it off and eat. Mm -hmm. If I hear somebody who's sniffling or coughing or sneezing around me, I'm probably not going to take it off to eat. It leads me, if I'm popping into the corner of bodega to grab something and the store's empty, I probably won't take my mask out and put it on. If I'm going to the Safeway and I'm going to be there for half an hour and it's crowded, I will. And so it really is crowded spaces where I don't see any good reason to have my mask off, then I will wear it. And in other circumstances, I'm more comfortable than I was before. And part of that is conditioned on the fact that the COVID rate in the Bay Area right now is quite low. UCSF Hospital has 10 COVID patients in the hospital now. At the peak of Omicron, we had 150. So in part, it's calibrated because the risk is low. The chances that the person next to me, you know, in the bodega has it is pretty low. They're harder to follow than they used to be. But if those numbers start spiking up a lot, I'll probably become more careful. Mm-hmm. Right. It's about assessing and calculating whether the risk is worth it. And going back to those public health emergencies, or rather the end of them, They will have some impact on us when it comes to the cost and accessibility of things like free testing and treatment. Those are resources in place that are meant to help infections from spreading. Are you worried about that? Yeah, I am. And I think, you know, for a while, some of those things will continue to be paid for. I think the vaccines will probably be covered by including by Medi-Cal for, I'm hoping forever, but for a long time. Yeah, tests will be harder to come by. And that comes at a cost. I wish they were covered forever, but I also wish insulin was covered for everybody forever and test strips for your diabetes and screening tests for your cancer. Do I wish we had a healthcare system that just made everything free for everybody that needed it, including prevention and testing? Uh, Yeah, that would be great. But I can't anymore sort of say the conditions for COVID are so different that justify a major difference in the way we think about COVID versus the way we think about diabetes or cancer or heart disease or stroke. And I'm a general doctor. I take care of all those people. And so the case for COVID exceptionalism over the past three years has been exceptional. But I think we've gotten to the point where I think that justification has gone down some, and therefore we've got to fold it into the way we think about other health threats. And what about disease monitoring? I I know that you're someone who helped us explain COVID data, and now a lot of that tracking might go away with the end of these emergency declarations. How do you feel about that? You know, it's another thing where I wish it would remain better than it probably will be, but it probably will be good enough. Mm. The case rates have become really hard to interpret because there's very little testing that sort of is in the public sphere that's going to be reported to the state. And and most of the case, I mean, if I got COVID today, I would know it because I 
did a home test in my house and I wouldn't report it to anybody. And so the system would have no idea that there's more COVID around. So I do think we need to sort of figure out like the two reliable measures really are going to be wastewater and hospitalizations and deaths, I guess. Uh, Both hospitalization and deaths are a lagging indicator. They won't go up until there's been a lot of COVID around for a few weeks. And they will go up in ways that are not perfectly in sync with the amount of cases. So you can have a lot of cases, but if if they're striking younger people or they're striking people who've been vaccinated or had COVID before, they may not translate. Thankfully, they may not translate into hospitalizations and deaths. Wastewater is a good early indicator that COVID's going up. My point, though, is the level of precision that's important for you and I to kind of figure out how to live our lives is not that great. I think there's enough data out there and probably, you know, I on Twitter and you and your colleagues should probably figure out a way that it's just as easy to take a look at this overall measure of COVIDness in the community as it is to look at the weather report. Mm, mm-hmm. If it's up by you know, 2%, that's not going to change behavior. It shouldn't change behavior. But if it's doubled, uh, you'd want to know that because I think for many people, including me, it would change the way I thought about my behavior, mostly around masking. I think we're past the point where it's going to change. Am I willing to get on an airplane? Over the course of the pandemic, Dr. Wachter has gained nearly 275,000 Twitter followers. What will his role in social media look like now as the COVID-19 pandemic recedes? He'll share after a quick break. We'll be right back. Did you know the number one way people discover new podcasts is word of mouth from their friends? So if you enjoy Fifth Emission, we'd love it if you tell someone about our show, even if it's just one person. Thanks for helping us make new friends. There's still a lot of fear, Dr. Wachter, and unknowns about long COVID, and many people have had serious symptoms lingering well after their infection has passed. And you and your family have been open about sharing your own wife's long COVID status last year. I first wanted to ask, how is how is she doing? Well, thank you. Uh, she is substantially better than she was, um, let's say, six months ago. So she, she got had COVID it must have been March or April, spring a year ago. So she's a little over a year out. Six months ago, she was, I mean, I, we see many people that are far worse, but she definitely every day at about one or two in the afternoon, she would just hit a wall and need to lay down for an hour, which she never, ever did before she had COVID. Mm -hmm. And she had enough brain fog that she would like forget appointments and things like that. And she's a very high functioning journalist and author. And this was not her. Six months later, so now a year out from her case in COVID, she still gets more tired than she did previously, but better than it was. And that's, I think, it's been nice for her, but also reassuring for people that have long COVID. The general trajectory is that people tend to get better. Not everybody does. Mm -hmm. But on average, if you're feeling, you know, whatever the symptoms you have of long COVID, there's a decent chance that you will get better month to month. And that's been her experience so far. Mm-hmm. And people will say things like COVID will eventually become more like the flu, but long COVID is this X factor that seems to complicate that trajectory, right? Totally. When people ask me, why are you still being as careful as I'm being? It's almost all about long COVID. I mean, I, I just got the second bivalent a month ago. And so I've now had six vaccine shots in me. 
And as a reasonably healthy 65-year-old, it does not cross my mind that I'm going to die of COVID. That is absolutely not what I thought in March 2020 when I was hiding it in my kitchen table. I was quite worried that I and people like me would die of COVID, and that was not unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, now that's not really concern. I don't want to get it in part because I'd have to miss work for a week or so, and I'd probably feel crummy. But the main reason I don't want to get it is because, at least in my estimation of a lot of different data that's kind of all over the place, a reasonably healthy, fully vaccinated and boosted 65-year-old probably has a 1 in 20 chance of getting long COVID if they get COVID. So that's, you know, 19 out of 20 chance I'm not, but a 1 in 20 chance that I'm going to still feel crummy six months or 12 months from now. And also, I think reasonably persuasive data that if you've gotten COVID, your chances over time of having a lot of bad things, heart attack, stroke, diabetes, autoimmune disease, some cognitive decline are higher than if you haven't gotten COVID. So that's enough to motivate me to try not to get it if I can, again, weighing the benefits of living life normally. I think the motivation is mostly about long COVID rather than the acute threat the way it used to be. Earlier, you mentioned that, you know, you've been surprised that things have been relatively stable, but you're still worried about potential renewed spikes in infections or new variants. That's still that's still a consideration. Yes. And the reason is, of course, that we've had three years where every time things seem to be stable, the virus got clever and and, and figured out some way of throwing us a curveball. And so I think there are two considerations there. One is, you know, will we have spikes even if the virus stays the same? And the answer probably is yes, as people are becoming less careful. And, you know, in the Bay Area, you still see a fair number of people wearing masks. You go to other parts of the country or I was just in Europe uh, last month. I mean, you just don't see a mask anywhere. Mm -hmm. So people have gone back essentially to their old behaviors. And I get that. It's, you know, feels good not to think about this. And over time, their immunity, whether if you only got vaccinated a year and a half ago, that immunity has waned a lot. And if your immunity came from an infection a year ago, that immunity has also waned. So when you combine the virus still being out there, people not being careful anymore, and people's immunity having waned, whether you got it from a vaccine or from an infection, you're going to see spikes. There's sort of a natural rhythm to that. But the biggest threat really is a new variant may come out. And I think for the past year and a half, we've been very lucky. The variants are not coming as fast and furious as they were. But if you think about what are the worries, and I think most people have sort of moved on from COVID, but if you if you want to still worry about COVID, the worry would be that there's no guarantee that we won't have a new variant that comes that is fundamentally different. Mm-hmm. I want to talk now about your role during the pandemic. You've amassed such a social media following since the pandemic started. Your advice has been turned to from people not just in the Bay Area, but all over the world. What has that experience taught you about good public health communication? When I started tweeting and speaking to the media about COVID, I I had a little bit of imposter syndrome because I'm a general internist. I run a very large department of medicine in a fantastic place at UCSF. And so I have access to all of the best experts. and, And so that helped inform me. But I came to realize there's actually a lane for people that are sort of experts in medicine. I understand medicine, public health, and epidemiology quite well, who kind of synthesize the information from a lot of different sources. And a lot of this is also policy, politics, things I know a fair amount about. So I think people were also 
desperately looking for trusted sources. Mm -hmm. And trusted sources, not only you know what you're talking about, but you also seem like a reasonable human being. And part of what I did on Twitter, not really intentional, but it's just my personality, I talked about sort of my fears. I talked about my family. I mean, one day I tweeted a picture of my lunch and it was it was uh, uh, SpaghettiOs with meatballs and double stuffed mm -hmm. Oreos. And I said, that's just the way I'm feeling. And I think people sort of want to know that you're a human being going through this the same way. It was very gratifying. You know, I went from, I think I had 15,000 Twitter followers to 275,000. I don't think I got all that much more interesting or brilliant in, in, <laughs> you know, in, in three months. Obviously, the interest was really in COVID and people were looking for people that they, you know, that, that they thought were reliable synthesizers of an amazing amount of new information that was changing all the time. And, you know, it was gratifying. And I do think, you know, they were not making an unreasonable decision they, to, to look for not only information, you know, what does this latest paper mean? But trying to find a few people, whether it was me or there were others who were doing similar things, who were synthesizing it. And not only sort of here's what this paper says, but here's what I am doing. And I had a lot of people say to me, this is too complicated. It's changing too fast. You just tell me what you're doing and I'll do that. And, you know, it was a lot of responsibility, but I think that wasn't a crazy thing for them to do. And I took that responsibility very seriously. And how do you see your role now? Well, I'm tweeting less than I was about COVID in part because I think Again, it's not changing that much, mm -hmm. but, you know, just like everybody else, I, you know, I kind of have gotten back to the rest of my life. I still run the best department of medicine in the universe at UCSF, and that's my day job and what they pay me to do and been focusing a little bit more on those things and a little, and, and I, you know, in the same way everybody else has been feeling COVID fatigue, I feel a little bit of the same. It's like nice to get back and not think about it so much. But I also want to make clear to people there still is COVID out there. You should still pay some attention to it. But for it not to be the first thing you think about in the morning, I wish the, the other things we sometimes have to think about are, <laughs> weren't as unpleasant. But, you know, there is some joy in, to be in a world where that's not the thing we all think about in the morning. And given that it's not, I don't think there's nearly as much interest in, in, in what's going on. People have said to me, oh, you should write a book about this. And I just feel like you know, the last thing people want to do is spend, <laughs> spend another 20 hours with me revisiting what's happened over the past three years. I'm ready to move on, and I think most people are as well. Well, Dr. Wachter, I sincerely hope it stays that way. I hope I don't have to hop on another interview with you six months from now or whenever that may be with any big changes. Thank you so much. I appreciate You're, it. If, if you do, you know how to find me, and I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> always enjoyed, and I've enjoyed the coverage that you and your colleagues have, uh, have put out there. I think it's been really important and very terrific. Thank you, Dr. Wachter. My pleasure, Celia. Dr. Bob Wachter is the chair of UCSF's Department of Medicine. He's still on Twitter. If you are, he's at Bob underscore Wachter. That's W-A-C-H-T-E-R. Thanks to King Kaufman for editing this episode and to you for listening. <laughs>